Well, happy darn Culture Cast Day. What the heck, everyone? Happy darn Tuesday and welcome, 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 my dear friend and amazing leader, Jason Cochran, to Culture Cast. Hello. Hello, Marisa. Thank you. Happy Culture Cast. And I'm admired to be here and ready to have a great time. Oh, my goodness. So um, it looks like a lot of people are already popping into the chat. I love this. You know, I took a peek at who might be attending. So I also, can I just call this a reunion? A little bit of, you know, you and I go way back. I'm almost embarrassed, but not at all. Proud to say how way back we go with all these brands, but it feels a little bit like a reunion based on the people that I know were popping in. And so for those who are here, feel free to jump in and make a comment if something so moves you, or if there's something that you really want to hear from Jason, um, please throw that in the chat. So that would be amazing, everyone. So um, Jason, I know you are not new to our conversations, but new to CultureCast. Um, for everyone here, I think you know that I've been hosting these conversations with amazing leaders across different industries to hear your story and more specifically, interview leaders so that our audience can get great learnings and tips and tricks on how they themselves can create inclusive cultures in their lives, whether it's at home or at work or with their teams, virtually, et cetera. So no pressure, my friend. I'm humbled to be here. <laughs> All right. So I think everyone knows Jason is the CEO of American West Restaurants in the U.S. It is the, the company is the third largest franchisee of Pizza Huts, a brand that you and I um, actually share in common believe it or not. And you've had such a rich career. So instead of me talking about it, let's talk about you, Jason, but not so much about your career path, but what, what happened in your life that really led you to be this amazing leader that I've known you to be for the past 15, 20 years. So tell us about you and where you grew up and kind of what led you to leadership. Well, overall, plenty of learnings and, and mistakes that uh, I've been able to, you know, uh, learn and reflect on. But I think that, you know, before my career started, it's more about um, beginning with my parents and and the admiration I have for my parents. You know, Marisa, I think I've mentioned the story to you a couple of times. You know, they were married in 1965. Wow. And at the time, in the early 60s, there were something like 31 states that interracial marriages were illegal. And with my my dad being African-American and my mother being Caucasian, I I say that for them, it was pretty darn courageous, especially knowing that I think the stat was around 3% of the population at that time um, were mixed marriages. So wow. very, very small. Um, and, you know, what I even get that much more energy around is the day where that was overturned by the Supreme Court, you know, with uh, Virginia versus, excuse me, Loving versus Virginia. And that itself was an inspiring story in uh, 1967. And so I think that that was a mark of changing the world. And, and I look back and Juneteenth and Loving Day are some of my favorite holidays to celebrate. But I think those are the things that have shaped me growing up. Um, you and I have shared stories of what it feels like to uh, be different. Yeah. Um, my brother and I grew up that way in, in Phoenix, Arizona, being different. So you can imagine the stories for some who are out there would know what it's, uh, what it's like to be called certain names that I laugh about today. You know, Oreo man, um, uh, half breed, uh, or even the whole busing thing that happened in the early 70s. So I think a lot of that shaped me and how to overcome adversity, um, how to, while I'm very extroverted, but how to think independently yeah. and not depend on others to uh, grow and to uh, you know, make progress, both personally and professionally. Amazing. And, and thank you for being so open about your upbringing. And I know you and I have talked about it. You know, your parents were trailblazers in 1965 to be only 3% of marriages that are mixed race, which today is just so commonplace. Um, they, you know, between 65 and then the Loving versus Virginia that you talked about, that is like 
pioneering in love and in relationships. And, you know, I can see how even that spirit you've grown up with. And I hear you, you know, I know I, I chuckled when you said names that you were called growing up. You know, I, I think I shared this with you, but I, I felt the same way. You know, when we moved to um, a suburb, so I grew up in East LA and then we moved to Upland and my best friend had blonde hair and blue eyes and we went everywhere together. And my nickname that everyone would call me was Bubbles because I had really big lips. They made fun of how big they were and my skin. And then um, they called her boat driver because, you know, they thought that I was literally fresh off the boat and new to this country. So anyway, I hear you with that. So um, going back and being extroverted and feeling that independence, like how did that lead you to a career? I mean, you have this really, really rich career in retail and very quickly you became a leader. So let's talk about that. Sure. I, I think, you know, we're all wired a certain way from growing up. And one of my biggest learnings that I've applied to this day is running towards something versus running away from things. And so um, that's been a part of how it shaped my career and shaped my family um, with, uh, you know, what I enjoy with my, my wife, Ziamara, and my two boys are 13 and 10, Axel and Xavier. So we, we like to do things that are different and, and explore. But how it shaped my career, Marisa, is, um, you know, I moved out of the house when I was 14 with my football coach. And so being open to the types of uh, things that he had me do for summer jobs, whether that was um, picking grapes in the field or just ways to earn extra money where, you know, I cleaned refrigerators and freezers in, in elderly homes. And so a lot of scrappy jobs. But my first real career I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I used to hang out at a mall called Christown Mall. <laughs> and um, speaking of being extroverted, I, I like to talk with people a lot. And I remember the manager, manager there said, hey, you should work here. You're good at talking to people. And because we pay commission, you will do great. Nice. And so um, that's where it began. I, I remember earning my hours. I was given three hours my first week to prove myself and, you know, working through and, and persevering with what it took to get more hours and you sell more, you get more hours. And that uh, soon led to a pretty cool career because when I joined Merry Go Round clothing stores, which for somebody might remember that. <laughs> I remember Merry Go Round. jeans and, and parachute yes. But, um, you know, I was there for almost eight years. And when I joined, they just went public. I think they had barely 100 locations at the time. And so we grew to 1,500 stores before a whole uh, chapter 13, chapter 11 liquidation fashion. And, and, and that business changed pretty quickly. But what it did teach me is, is, is things like, number one, take care of customers. Customers take care of you. Uh, the harder you work, the more you get paid. Um, and some of those basic um hospitality attributes that I was able to learn there. I love that. So first of all, I don't think I recall that you moved out at 14 years old with your football coach. What's up with that? I mean, that's like growing up pretty, pretty quickly. It was. Well, the short story of it is my, my dad, uh, who, who was an electronic engineer at Motorola and in the city of Phoenix in the late seventies and early eighties, city of Phoenix exploded. Yeah. And so his commute went from 45 minutes to almost four hours. And oh, so wow. um, he made the decision to move family uh, from once the West Valley to the East Valley. And I was very involved in my high school after my freshman year, played on the, the varsity football or basketball team. And, and sports was a big way that I fit in at yeah. that time. And so so um, it long story short, it worked out where. Uh, my football coach allowed me to stay with he and his wife, Max, at that time. And um, I'll, I'll share that the, my first day moving into their home, I had four trash bags of all my clothing. Nice. And uh, my coach <laughs> told me to wait in the driveway and he'll be right back. 15 minutes went by and he told me to come on in the house and standing at the door was Max, her, his wife. She was a principal at another high school and she was open arms and said, well, I guess you're living with us for the next three years. And so he never told her about the conversations we had with my parents. Oh, and my goodness. He was going to be staying there. But 
those are a lot of the things that, um, you know, early on I was able to get from my, between the work ethic from my dad and then my mom as it relates to living frugal and clipping coupons. But with my football coach, it was more about um, goals and affirmations. And I remember the first book he gave me was called The Rhinoceros Success. And that's all about running with the cheetahs, uh, eating with uh, the eagles and and being a, a rhino. And so those are some of the things that wired me early on. And that's the story about living with my football coach. Oh, my goodness. And I can't imagine. Actually, I can't imagine it, as you describe, rolling in with these three big trash bags the grace you had and the grace that Max had for you, because if she was just finding out, oh, well, Jason's going to live with us. But then I, I, I think that's kind of a cool story to just hear about. Well, because it was sports and you wanted to stay involved and stay connected. So I can see why your parents would want you to thrive in that way. But then the merry-go-round. So first of all, Edna is in here just saying loving merry-go-round. Dude, I remember all those brands. And um, I am not surprised that you are likely, because you are today, and of course, a very business way, um, a fashion plate. Although you are a fashion plate when I've seen you off hours, I'll just say that. But the, the learnings from merry-go-round, yes, you know, three hours, too. I'm sure if they could, they would have worked you full time, like immediately. Yes. I'm sure you were like rolling in the dough, just knowing you in terms of your ability to not only talk to people, but literally help them become stylish. Was that what was going on? Oh, it was good times. I, I work for some really great people. I, I, I'm going to throw out a couple of names. But, yeah. you know, I, I've lost contact with someone like my first manager, Michael Brown, Michael Mysek, uh, who, who were just um, really good managers and kind of showed me the ropes in the beginnings of what it means to run a business, understand what it means to beat last year and those types of fun things. But, you know, Maurice, when I look at my my career, I like many is I see it as a journey. And there's a uh, there's a, a saying or a quote that that I like to live by. And that's el viaje es mojir que destino. And that basically means that the journey is better in the end or the process is better than the outcome. And, you know, that that was coined by Miguel de Cervantes, nice. who was a um, you know, he fought in the early Roman army and this is like 15, 1600s. But long story short, a lot of people don't know he was the, the writer of Don Quixote, which is the adventures and the journeys of Don Quixote. And so that's kind of how I see my career is just, you know, it's been a lot of uh, one step back to move two steps forward. And, and I think that's made it in a humble way, the right way to um, achieve a, a, a you know, modestly successful career. Okay, you are, of course, are being modest and humble as you talk about your career, Don Quixote. Um, let's talk about, like, you left merry-go-round. I know that you mentioned that it was Chapter 11 and, you know, 1,500 stores, and then eventually it folded. So how did you get on to what was next for you? Like, what was your career move then, and how did that happen? Well, I remember vividly at that time I was in Sacramento, California, um, and I think you know this, I've moved for my career within four companies 18 times. So I've lived all over. At this time, I was in Sacramento and we were closing down stores at Merry-Go-Round in my, my regional at the time. His name was Rich. He called me and said, hey, uh, congratulations, you closed down all of California. We'd like you to move out to Cincinnati to close down another 125 locations. And, you know, I, I remember vividly, I was standing in my apartment at that time saying, you know, I think it's time. I think it's time I go ahead and, and say, yeah. you know, let me move on. And so what I did at that time, not to date myself, but I ended up faxing out um, <laughs> just shy of 100 resumes. And I ended up um, mainly in the fashion specialty apparel business. I ended up getting it boiled down to two options. One was Wet Seal uh, clothing stores and the other was called Styles for Less. What attracted me from Styles for Less is the founder of Styles for Less. He... Uh, he was the founder of Close Time, built Close Time, retired. And he said to me, because I was going, okay, does Wet Seal or Stouts for Less? He said to me, do you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? And that was the wrong thing to say to me to get me motivated <laughs> to join a company that only had five locations. And I joined as a district manager at that time and had a great five years with him. I think I worked six-day work weeks for that entire five wow. years. We opened up. Uh, somewhere 130 locations between Arizona, California, 
and uh, Nevada. So that was a good time there at that company. Amazing. Um, you're just talking about all these brands, but first of all, the visual of faxing 100 resumes, I think <laughs> only you can be one of my friends that has actually done that in their lives. Um, and remember, the paper was kind of thermal. So on the other side, I can't imagine, you know, people taking that. But then tell me about this. You know, when you got hired to Styles for Less, and he says, you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in the big pond. I mean, you clearly chose, I'm going to grow the pond is what you chose. Like, why, why did you choose that? I think, uh, Marisa, just the challenge of it okay. and knowing, you know, I think what's wired me is a growth mindset is knowing what's possible. And I think that's even attracted me to what I'm doing today here at American West is just always looking toward what's possible, seeing the forest through the trees, you know, these sayings. Yeah. And so when he, when he was describing the vision he had uh, and what he accomplished already at close time, I kind of said to myself, I want to be a part of that. And the learnings and the things that I was able to do working directly for the CEO uh, was great. I was involved with the buying. I remember we would go through, um, you know, some hot t-shirts at that time. And, and he would always look to how can we get better margin by using less fabric and, yeah. and those types of things of being scrappy and figuring out a way to be profitable and how can you grow? And so I looked forward to that experience. It paid off that that's what it was. And that was a, that was a good time. Yeah, I think, thanks for sharing that detail too on growing the pond, so to speak. You know, I always share this as a career tip for folks. And I see folks on here that I've had the chance to support directly, you know, in my career is that there's always um, a point in your career where being part of a startup, right? And it's ripe right now for all the entrepreneurs that are out there and all these startups that are happening when you're joining a place where you can see the vision of growth and have the chance to do beyond, like learn more than what your trade or your craft is and really learn the full scope of the business, which is what it sounds like you did um, at Styles for Lust and actually get new skills as well, that will help you in the long term. I mean, to me, I'm not surprised that you've been able to really ascend in your career because of those early learnings of just broad broad business learning that was happening. And I don't know if you knew that at the time when that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, it, I got clues of it at that time, Reese. I remember interviewing and um, being my first company. I worked at nearly eight years. I heard things like you need to globalize yourself. You had experience just at, you know, one organization or one category of retail yeah. and those types of things I remember. And it actually paved the turns in my career going from specialty retail to sporting goods and then video games and now the food and restaurant industry. And so I, I think the experience I've had have helped fulfill me and, and globalize my thinking and I've enjoyed it. I know, let's talk about that. I love the fact that you've been able to span across different kinds of retail and industries. So sports, Okay. So how did you end up there? Yeah, so one of my, um, one of my friends today, his name is Eric Tomasi. He uh, he was at Styles for Less, and he went over to a company called Copeland Sports. It's based out of San Luis Obispo on the central coast of California. And uh, he needed a great operator, a director. Um, this was a small company, mom and pop owned that. I think they started out with six or seven locations and built this 50 store fleet of these massive 50,000 square foot um, you know, 10,000 SKUs within each department, kind of a equivalent of a Dick's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but this was more cutting edge with board shops and, and, uh, golf simulators in the golf shop and fitness center. So at any rate, um, he had been talking with me quite a bit. I think that that period went over about six months and finally I decided to make the plunge and here, here it again, it was, scrappy, almost a startup. And I, I believe at that time, it was the vision of the Copeland brothers that they wanted to sell to private equity. So I was able to get that experience, um, the back half of that five years and um, had a lot of autonomy and a lot of figuring it out in a category that 
while I grew up playing a lot of sports, it was amazing to see how technical things had become in terms of product of hard goods and soft goods. Yeah, amazing. I think you're right, Copeland, much like what Addicts is today, but I think different in those unique, I'd say experiences, right? Especially if there is like a board shop or the golf simulator and you can figure out how to experience that as a good way of selling. Um, that's cool that you have the chance to go work that, but I'm, I'm excited because you're gonna enter into video games. And yeah. I, you know, I, this is where our paths cross initially in life. And I wanna jump into that because you joined GameStop in the early days and had have seen it, you know, through its kind of uprise and success. And one thing that you, I remember learning from you when we were working together is yes, it's all around accountability. That's who you are as a leader, but you always talked about creating the environment. So let's talk about that. And let's talk about, you know, your days at GameStop and why that was something that I would have learned from you, you know, about creating the environment in terms of not only holding people accountable, but the environment that you create for people. Oh, talk thank you, Marisa. Yeah. So, you know, as an operator, as many, many who I'm sure joined the culture cast know, you know, operations is, is about, you know, setting standards and having systems and routines and process, you know, all the boring things that uh, aren't excess, uh, necessarily sexy for other functions and departments. But what I found uh, early on as a leader, um, you know, number one, your success is dependent on great people. And, you know, I think there's that's kind of the beginning of one of the many books, but the Jim Collins book, Good yeah. to Great, Get on the Bus or Off the Bus. And but I think what's more even important in the process of or the employment life cycle of a team is the steps you take to create a culture or an environment where people can bring their best uh, to achieve or exceed your expectations. And so, you know, right into the process um, in creating the culture, um, the culture of accountability can oftentimes be misled, scary, or people shy away from that conversation. And I think creating a culture of accountability or an environment where people are accountable, mm -hmm. it's about taking action or taking ownership or enabling others to take ownership of what you're looking to achieve. And it's not about words like getting fired or quitting. And so as a leader, it's it, what I have learned from many other great leaders and people I've worked with. It's a process of you know, finding the right people, building trust and alignment, setting expectations and standards, tracking and quantifying performance, mm -hmm. and um, doing and showing or modeling what you expect. And so that routine of following up, coaching, helping people be successful, but also knowing when it's time to, to make a change is important to not be bashful away from that. And so um, I'd imagine, Maurice, and some of the, the, the leaders and people you talk with, um, where this could be a challenge in creating that environment yeah. in a remote workspace today, I, I, you know, what are you seeing out there, people saying about that type of environment? Well, it's interesting what you just laid out, and um, thanks for asking. It's fascinating because people are still, hybrid is still going to be alive and well, I think now more than ever. I think I read a statistic the other day, it was that a McKinsey study, that um, four out of five people who experienced remote working or flex working over the last couple of years have that high expectation that they will continue. And I think the conversations I've been having with leaders is like, how how do we do that successfully? And when we talk about creating culture, it's not just about um, all the soft stuff. I think people think about like, oh, well, culture is all about all about hugs and kisses. Actually, no, it's not. I think when you talk about culture, it's what you said. It's how do you create an environment where people can bring their best? You know, I think that's really important. And the only way they can bring their best are some basic leadership principles, which you've already outlined, right? So setting expectations and standards for people, like what do you expect from them? Um, also, how are you going to measure success? What outcomes are they driving? What are they delivering? Whatever words you want to use it. But then as a leader, how do you model? How do you get in there with them to get them started, right? And if they kind of go off track and they're not delivering exactly what it is that you need, how do you get back in there and coach them? That hasn't changed. And in fact, I, I know I see a lot of our former colleagues on here who were in the people space 
working closely with the operators. And I think it's different when you're field-based because you've always kind of worked remotely, right? But then when office-based employees are now, you know, sheltering at home over the last couple of years, I think what's interesting is how, why is that so much easier when you're sitting side by side in the office? And um, I know what I've learned being a people leader and culture leader in organizations is that that's often the last skill that um, leaders actually learn. You know, I think most leaders that I've come across, you know, there's this natural leadership skill, which is amazing, and or they've had to learn it through the school of hard knocks because there was no training or class that taught you how to hold people accountable unless there were like some common sense things that happened to you in your upbringing, you know, many of the similar things that you shared with your upbringing, but like leaders don't know how to do that. And so I found during the pandemic, what I've heard from my teams that I supported is that, wow, they were exhausted, not so much because they didn't want to help people. They were in there to help people, but it was literally step-by-step coaching on, all right, I'm not getting the kind of results that I want from my team. So you have to back it up and say, all right, are you describing the job? So first of all, when you put that person in the role, did you match the right person into the role, right? So did you describe what the job's going to be? And did you put the right person in there? Assuming that you did, are you all clear? So on what you're expecting from that person and then how do you measure, you know, the outcomes or deliverables? And then based on that, you know, how are you providing them guidance and direction along the way? So um, that is still a classic. And I think that is the challenge. And I feel like I'm preaching now, but that's the challenge now with hybrid because it's going to require team leaders, people who support team members, you know, if that's your role as a leader to actually work harder, right? Like at, demonstrate those skills and get in there and, you know, work with your people in a very different way. And I think the second thing is, and then I'd love to get your reactions, is that there's a level of um, empathy and kind of emotional intelligence too that needs to happen when it's not face-to-face IRL, right? When you're like on the phone and or in a video conference like that, which, um, it requires extra emotion and energy than being in person. So anyway, that's what I think. I mean, yeah. what do you think? Um, I translate that as having to be deliberate mm-hmm. um, in the things that you do to interact with your team, um, you know, in a flex or remote environment, Marisa. You know, because uh, the natural behaviors um, can go unseen um, when you when you are a manager or leader of your team, Um you know, we've heard many of these sayings of of um, uh, window mirror, you know, in, yeah. in, in how you are looking in the mirror to be accountable for when the team is underperforming or looking out when the team is overperforming and giving the team credit and vice versa. But those, you know, context is missing often in the remote or flex environment because yeah. it's it's the meeting before the meeting or the huddle after the meeting. Yeah to be able to debrief and, and understand um, intentions. Um, and so a lot of those things are missed to provide coaching opportunities and continue to, you know, I think the one common thread that's important in a remote uh, working arrangement is that you have clear quantifiable measures of success. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, the, the common thread that you have to be delivered about going into the, the remote environment or what you sustain in your follow-up and how someone is progressing. But nonetheless, I think um, while that's, you know, these are learned lessons, I, I had said earlier about um, mistakes or failing. You know, I, I love the, the acronym fail is uh, first attempt uh, in learning. And so I have learned in working in many remote environments as a district manager or yeah. a regional or a market vice president, this culture of accountability is very important because it's about what people, including myself, are doing when others aren't looking versus when people are looking. Yeah. And so I think establishing an environment of accountability is important for that reason. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I love that you brought up the FAIL acronym 
<laughs> oh my goodness. That's, yeah. that's like, that's a good nugget. But You've seen a few of those over the years. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, so let's talk about that since, you know, I think we have a unique relationship as, you know, I was your people person or human resources person. And here you were like this up and coming leader at GameStop. And I know we joke around about it today, but let's talk about those hard lessons learned for you. I know that it's it's not always 100% perfect, especially as you continue to grow as a leader. But what were those, like, what's a good learning moment for you where you were kind of finally figured out how to kind of adapt your leadership style as you were gaining more responsibility? Well, fortunately for Marie, me, Marisa, is... Um, uh, we were talking earlier about how we are wired. I am a dream big, fail fast. Mm -hmm. So the velocity of which I'm getting learnings along the way um, are plentiful. And I think that uh, what were some of the turning points would be um, doing 360s yeah. and um, being able to hear what whom I reported to had to say about me or my performance or my leadership style, but may not be telling me because, you know, mildly there were pretty good results, but a lot of times it's keep doing what you're doing versus, hey, let's talk about a certain competency or skill area that I'd like to see improve in. Or even most importantly, um, people who were on my teams, yeah. what would they have to say about their experience uh, working with me as a leader? I think those are some good humble moments. And then there's a, there's a saying that you use often that I've picked up on over the years, and that is how others are experiencing you. And so that gives me a way to reflect on, you know, after an interaction or as I kind of think and visualize a go forward strategy on something or an upcoming meeting is how I want people to experience my leadership. And so those are some of the things that were turning points in my career early on, many assessments. And I've probably done a dozen 360s over the years and yeah. those have a lot. I love that. Yeah. 360s are a good way to, if you have a leader who's is always just saying, Oh, just keep doing what you're doing, which is not actually not great coaching because you can be specific, but uh, very detailed feedback. If people are honest on the 360 tool and I see them as a way to actually support the development of people. I've also seen it used other ways, which is like this person's failing and how do we help them by giving them a 360? No, that's when you need to have a conversation with someone around why you care about their success and why they're failing. Um, and I do love that you say this because I think it's it's a Marisaism, and I hear a lot of leaders play it back to me all the time. That they'll go, I think I'm getting coached by you because I've had a conversation that starts with, here's how I've how I've experienced you. You know, not only how others have experienced you, but how I've experienced you. And I think to your point, it is a way of actually focus on focusing on the behaviors and focusing on the impact of those behaviors on others or at the task at hand versus a feeling or a judgment about someone. And I think that that's I think that's how that kind of way of saying things came into the way because it's not so much intent. I think not everyone knows what your intent is. You know, you talked about context, but like, you know, and a friend of mine, Alyssa Cohen said this on our culture cast about a month ago, you know, you are the expert in your intent, but not the expert at your impact, right? And other people will be able to measure that. And so I think it's really important that as a leader, especially early on, that you've figured that out. And I mean, dude, I've seen this. I mean, you and I talk about this all the time where, um, you know, there's one point, I think that we've all lived this, where you kind of learn your way into being a leader and there's kind of really rough spots. But then over time, it's like, how is it so effortless? You know, one the one way I experience you, when I know you are listening with intent and also we have a task to get done, you are taking copious notes. And then um, I'll give you an example. You'll take notes in a meeting about something that um, we need to accomplish and getting feedback from me as well as you are from other stakeholders. I know you do this, you know, and um, at the end of the meeting, you will play back. Here's what I heard from you. 
here's the ideas that I'm going to try. And it's kind of like, okay, here's kind of what we're measuring. And um, this is what I owe to you. And let me get back to you. Right. And then confirm that that's how we've aligned on the discussion or what the conversation was. And then you're off and running. And then the next time we follow up, if it's not in um, a document, I think you might still be notorious for this. I don't know. I'm going to check this. You also like always have like a piece of paper and you've got like your red pen, which is kind of the follow-up. So the black pen might be, or ink might be, you know, the OG, but then the red pen is like, all right, here's how you're going to continue to refine it. This is how I experience you ensuring accountability in meetings, even when you're meeting with stakeholders, you know, beyond team members, like how you're creating influence and alignment across different parts of the organization. I mean, tell me about that. Do I get that right? How I experience you. Well, those are hilarious stories and ways to describe. And just for the record, I still have my piece of paper that I carry. Even I do all the notes digital and in the, there's still the totally. red And I have one in my pocket. And, and everyone knows me. I always have it where I just, I've done it over the years because when you travel stores or travel restaurants and to be typing in your phone or typing in your iPad as you're trying to, you know, um, have an interaction the perception is you're checking email or you're, you're doing a text. So, so I, I listen very well by, by list, by writing notes and, and, and tracking. Yeah. Um, Risa, I think that a um, couple of things about what you said, the experience of, well, first of all, when you use how others are experiencing you, it reminds me, and I hate to be the bookworm, but yeah. it, that has been a part of what's created um, some really cool outcomes for me is just lots of books. So there's, there's the book, um, Change the Culture, Change the Game, or yep. Creating a Culture of, of Accountability. And they use the results pyramid. And the base of the results pyramid is around experiences, yeah. drive the beliefs to create the actions and the results. And so those experiences are important. And people, not as, as a leader, they're not only, I mean, they're watching what you're saying, they're watching what you're doing, and they can cite back what time you 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 go to the bathroom. They can say these little habits you have, and so you're you're responsible for modeling future leaders. So that's important. Yes. On your story of what what I like to do, working cross functionally or working with teams or colleagues, it's um, over the years I've dealt with a lot of ambiguity. Um, in other words, you know, Jason, we need to build a mountain that's, you know, a thousand feet tall, or we need to complete, completely turn around this business. And so being able to check in and get um, various definitions of what that vision is and find the common denominator and really home in on the problem to solve or the root cause of, oh, and to build a foundation or a business process for a strategy is really important. And uh, that way, I think that builds trust in the people yeah. you're working with. And then at the end of the day, you're delivering on the result or the expected outcome. And so you don't have that miss. They might be working hard over here on this thing, but the goal line is over, over here to the left. And those are some of the habits, I think, that have kind of formed, um, you know, how I like to operate. Yeah, I think it's a great way for me to just point out to you. It's a way of modeling the behavior you're expecting from others. Mm -hmm. Right. So we go back to you know, where we were at the beginning of this leadership conversation around, you know, setting clear um, expectations and aligning on them with your team, making sure that there are clear, clear, measurable outcomes, you know, to so that you can measure, did they deliver that or not, right? And then there needs to be coaching that happens. And I love that um, you're even modeling that and I'll call it the micro moments, like the interactions. It's kind of this loop that I see you doing. It's not the overarching, but it's in the moment and in the times you're interacting with people. I don't know if you see that. I see it clearly now that you play it back to me. That's what you do in every interaction that I've had with you from a business standpoint, you know, aligning on that, right? Even just setting the expectation up front. We're going to talk about X, Y, and Z and then closing with, all right, here's what we're going to measure, you know, the next step on or whatever the, the action is and then follow through on that. Um, what a great way of modeling that behavior. I, I know that um, you've had so many huge roles in your career, but I'd love to ask you the question of, like, when did you feel like you were in your flow? 
Meaning as a leader where you felt like, wow, I'm ready for this next step. What was it that happened? Um, what was the assignment or what was the experience where you felt like, wow, this is like all of this learning coming together so that I can step up, you know, to this next level of leadership? Well, gee, there would be a handful, but if I had to pick one that would come to mind, um, it's probably when I went to SMU to get my MBA. Um, that was a, a very humbling experience Yeah. Um, for a lot of reasons. I, you know, I'm sure that there's uh, people who attend Culture Cast who, who would go, okay, when's the last time you've taken a four-hour exam? Um, and and in uh, the pack of that exam as big as a phone book, you know, but it was going back to the being, getting, achieving, earning the MBA. I like yeah. to say that I, I aged four years in that two years at SMU. Um, I felt like in the various roles I had, Marisa, and I had very good business acumen and yeah. I was able to lead with facts, figures and symbols mm -hmm. and, and assessing a PL or finding the KPIs or, um, but, but get gaining uh, financial acumen um, is a whole nother story in learning what it, what it is to run a multi-regression to understand yeah. the difference of independent dependent or um, understanding M&A in a real way and how to do valuations. Yeah. Those types of things, walking out of that experience, I would define as feeling like, okay, I've got this and, and it felt like the ceiling, the glass ceiling that was above me, you know, running a $7 billion PL or having, you know, at the time is 4,000 stores. Yeah. But it did feel like a glass ceiling on, okay, could I, could I be a chief operating officer? Could I be a CFO? Could I be a CEO? Could yeah. I run a board? And so that experience felt like it, it opened up new doors that I, I said, okay, I, I got this. And, um, and it's an experience that, you know, um, no one could ever take away achieving yeah. MBA. That's how to answer that. Yeah, I love that. I love that you talk about, yeah, at the time you were running, you know, GameStop, $7 billion, at least, not at least, the biggest part of the organization, the retail side of it. And the fact that you also had another full-time job of getting your MBA. I mean, it's not like, hey, this is a part-time thing. It is a full-time job on top of, being a dad full-time. So executive, student, dad, right? All of those things. And I think this is just what most people on this call know about you. I don't know when you ever sleep, but somehow you get this all done. Um, and I love though that you're bringing up, not only did you learn all this great business acumen and know how to cite facts and figures, et cetera, the ins and outs of the business, but I think there's this other level that helped you you know, get to that glass ceiling because you can see the broader business app, um, implications and the strategy of the business. I'll just say that, you know, and I would say it was a good time for you to go and do that. You know, having been in a very executive or senior role, you know, at GameStop and to be doing that, I think it's kind of a real time. You're doing this on the side and at the same time, putting it all together you know, in your role, because I think that just was a necessary step, quite frankly, to get you to where you are today. Yeah. You know, I, 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 what do you think about that? I know. Let's well, talk about that. Well, Marisa, the, the truth be told, what afforded me to be able to do that is I had great support, um, you know, between Ziamara, my wife and the boys were very young then and also a, a very good team. Um, yeah. which allowed for me to, ref, you know, if I look back, it helped me know where I needed to, as a leader, where to row versus steer versus cheer yeah. and, and manage my time off, off of two hours sleep a night during, during that two years. Um, but yeah, that, that, that would be it to, to really, you know, it's kind of like the matrix. It all came together then yeah. of, of being involved in conversations um, you know, at a finance level or being in conversations, um, looking at deals or, but not losing where my core was. And that was the teams at the store level yeah. and interacting with the basic conversations of 
How do we get more hours? Um, what we can do to hire, you know, more people or listening to the things that are on, you know, allowing the teams to have their voice and where I could make a difference in my role. And so that was just kind of a, 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 a turning point. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I think about getting your MBA or any kind of education while you're working, there is this force multiplier that happens. You know, it's not mm-hmm. only that knowledge that you're gaining, it, you know, and what you're learning. I, I've experienced this myself. I, I got my master's degree, my MBA earlier on in career. But I think what was really helpful for me is that I was surrounded by other people who were also working and getting their MBA. And they all were from different disciplines, right? Operations, marketing, finance, um, sales, you name it. And it was, I was able to actually understand their perspective. It was like a great lesson in diversity of like, we're all working on the same thing, but they see it so differently. And that gave me language and perspective where I'm like, wow, okay, everyone that I'm working with is in different functions and the organizations that I'm a part of. And so I think it was a, a fast lesson and, oh, yeah. you know, how to do that, right? How to, how to understand people, how to connect in that way from a business standpoint. Oh, yeah. I'd say I was, my study group was a bunch of A-type personalities. Uh, one was a graduate at West Point. Another was a graduate at uh, the Naval Academy. Another was uh, worked for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So my study group, if, if I was falling behind, they were going to keep me keep me um, on the right path. So um, th- those interactions were just excellent experiences. What was outside of retail or what was outside of video games at that time? And so um, great experiences if anyone can 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 be able to have that. Yeah, it sounds like they put all type A people together because you were part of that group as well. Just saying. Um, our time is going so quickly. I want to kind of fast forward. You and I reunited again. We had the chance to work at the same company our last go around, which was Chipotle. I know there's a lot of uh, Chipeeps that we used to work with that are on right now. My one big question for you is, you know, since we're talking about leadership and creating accountability, like what was what was the biggest learning about yourself as a leader? You know, you're now on as a CEO of an amazing opportunity, an amazing company. But walking out of that and knowing that you were coming into this new role, like what did you learn about yourself as a leader? Ooh, um, well, um, not being afraid to take a step at what you think you're going to enjoy the most. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, Chipotle, which was an outstanding, is an ex- outstanding organization. And I and we work with some really great people. Um, but I felt like I would be cutting myself short if I didn't make the leap to run my own organization. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we all have opportunities come our way, especially in this type of uh, uh, market time and age. And, um, and so when this opportunity came my way, I, um, there, there was something poking at me, um, you know, to go pursue my passion or to make the leap or, you know, perhaps I'd be falling short of my purpose if I didn't go do this. And so things felt right. Uh, we've talked earlier about uh, the private equity uh, team who uh, recruited and brought me aboard. Uh, I think there's a good match there in terms yeah. of what we value and and what we're trying to accomplish and meeting the team here. Um, I got to tell you, Marisa, uh, traveling many of the restaurants in Southern California or out in Utah, I, we have some amazing restaurant general managers who have been with Pizza Hut for 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And even in the office, I'm surrounded with some really great people who have been with American West for 14, 20, wow. 25 32 years. And so you can really see this special, I think we call it um, pizza sauce running through your veins, <laughs> um, special connection that that I feel privileged to be able to lead this team. Yeah, I, you know, I hear you. You just said a lot. So yes, I actually try and keep up with your LinkedIn posts, because you're always out there. And I love all the pictures. When you're out there with the restaurant general managers and the team members you're meeting, in the pizza huts. And I, I love what you said though, like 
have confidence, I'll say it differently, have confidence in like taking that next step, which will get you to follow your passion. Right. And I, I don't want to gloss over it, but I think about, you know, in the time that we worked together two times ago, right. At GameStop, I think I joined and the founders just bought their biggest competitor, which was trying to buy them. Hmm. And overnight they doubled in size to this $4 billion company. And in the four years that we worked together, you know, that company grew to this $10 billion company, you know, through, you know, not only acquisition, growing stores as well, but really growing people. And so uh, let's not lose sight of how you are now leading that organization. We recruited you to come on board at this last company. And at, you know, I think about that happened again, you know, part of it is the role that you played leading operation services and making sure that there were systems in place so that the company can scale in a sustainable way, not unlike, you know, the last experience. So I think you went to something different and familiar and yet familiar at the same time. And then what I also heard you say is it also gave you the experience to, and, and the uh, reinforcement to go and pursue your passion, which is kind of what you're doing now. And really, I think all of it coming together in terms of your background. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, on that leap um, into the restaurant industry, you know, common interview question for many and most was, well, how, how do you think you're going to transition from retail yeah. to the restaurant? And it, what was great is I could answer back. Well, I actually started, owned and sold my own restaurant, you know, when I lived in San Francisco. So that made, I think that kind of eased the, the comfort level of the interview. But the, from an operation standpoint, I mean, it's just it's it's more about the process. The, the, the cheap analogy is wash, rinse, sanitize, repeat. Yeah. And that's what operations is about. And if you can get that flywheel going with business process in operations and working cross fun- cross functionally to achieve a goal or a vision or a strategy, uh, it's unstoppable, especially when you have the right backing or, you know, it's a publicly traded organization or in the case of a private equity firm, um, uh, it's just uh, it's the way the market works, and so I, I love being able to make that connection, not just for the, an organization, but the people. You're creating, you're, you're opening up opportunity for hundreds and thousands of people to have careers or to to. Um, we talked about the uh, the Dudley video, the lollipop moment. Yeah. I mean, that ripple you can create. Yes. Uh, for others to thrive or to achieve their goals or to go beyond what they ever could imagine. And I think when I reflect back on the type of people I was able to interact with and work with in the past to be a part of, of their future and their success, both personally and professionally. Yeah. I love that you raised that lollipop moment, Ted talk as an example, but also in the industries where you've worked, it's been ripe with um, amazing opportunity for people to create their destiny, right? So, um, and I love that you talked about opportunity and not only are you working in organizations where there's like thousands, a hundred thousand people that you could ultimately be working with and how do you actually invite them to go and get it, right? Like I say, go and get it, like go and dream and get and achieve what you want to do in your career. And it seems like you know, you've worked in so many industries where that lollipop moment where you talk about just the one thing, it could have been you were intently listening to somebody years ago in one of your visits. And, you know, I know you've told the story before, a decade later, someone's coming back to you saying it was that one interaction or that one time or the time you gave me feedback, whatever it was that really inspired me to, you know, go and get my dream. And so I love that. I mean, I love that you talked about that and that that's what you're all about. Oh, thank you, Maurice. It's important as leaders, and especially building a culture or creating an environment that you're opening up doors for others. And um, I, I, I say this to my boys today, you know, um, it's probably no secret. We have a lot of process at the house. <laughs> <laughs> Man, but do they do they have red pens? Is the bigger question. They, they don't. <laughs> but you know, 
we all, those who have kids, you know, there's certain things you have to do to, to uh, keep your kids on the right path, to do the right things. And so I was having a conversation with my youngest one time. He was in a little bit of hot water. And I said to him, do you know why we're having a conversation about, you know, this is the way yeah. you should be doing it versus the way you shouldn't be doing it? He goes, he rolls his eyes, says, because you want us to grow up and be like you. And I, and I, and, but I, but I told him that, but it, it really dawned on me that I have to correct that. And I told him, I said, that that's great. Thank you. But I want them to grow up and have options. I want them to go up and have choices in their yes. life to do what they want to do. They don't have to be like me. If they, I told him, I told Xavier, if you want to be like me, great. But if you want to own a house or you want to have a big family or you want to do, you want to live outside of the U.S. abroad, you will have options by doing the right things and yeah. having good character, et cetera. So I think that's important, not just in my family, but for the people I am surrounded with is opening up doors for their future. Yes, I love that. It is about creating options for others so that they can go and do what they want to do. And I love that you applied it to both your family <laughs> and your family at work. So we've just got a couple of minutes. I have two questions for you. One is, if there's one thing that all of our peeps on this call can take away from the conversation today that they can actually go off and practice now so that they can be better leaders in creating an environment. What is the one thing, next executable step that they can take to do that? It's gonna be a little ambiguous, but I'm gonna say dream big and fail fast. Um, that would be my one thing, Marisa, if I reflect back over the, the long years that as a kid laying in bed thinking about the basketball game or the football game ca catching a touchdown pass or thinking about an interview or holding a conference or, you know, having a conversation like this is just visualizing it, dream what's possible, and then being comfortable with authentically making mistakes, yeah. not beating yourself up. Those are learnings for me, but that would be my advice. Dream big, fail fast. I love that. Dream big and fail fast. And then I also have the fail, um, fail acronym that you shared. The last question, because it is culture and I always like to dip into pop culture. You know, what are you loving, wearing, hearing, watching these days? Any one of those. <laughs> hearing, watching. Um, Let's see. Uh, I, you know, probably I'm fascinated with whether it's hearing, watching, um, or is social media. I'm okay. fascinated by that. Uh, we just we just brought aboard a social media manager, and yeah, um, you know, you think of old traditional marketing versus what's happening today. It's just whether you say ambidextrous or ubiquitous. Just yeah. the po the possibilities on reaching out, whether for marketing or. Uh, it's a race from my whiteboard, but we did a blue sky on it to be able to connect the dots and tell the story between food, people and fun. Yeah. And how that can be driven within social media is fascinating to me. So that's what I'm watching is how those trends are playing themselves out, how I kind of dabble in it a bit just to learn myself and also reading and learning what others are posting. And most importantly, the stories. I love it. Well, I think we are now at the top of the hour. There's a lot of love out here for you, Jason, and people just hearting you and enjoying this time. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time on CultureCast with all of us to share your wisdom and your learning. And can I call you Don Quixote? I, I think about like this journey that you've gotten us on. So I'm excited to see this next chapter and where you go on this journey. I mean, there's going to be so many more learnings that we can we can take from it. So super, super excited to have had you, heart you, heart all of you. Um, and we'll see you next time. I'm taking a break. I'm traveling quite a bit in the next couple of weeks. But our next Culture Cast will be on Wednesday, our next live one, Wednesday, May 24th at 11 a.m. Pacific time with Tia Carrer. So everybody, we will see you then. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Be well. Thank you, Marisa. Bye, everybody. Bye.